Morning, guys. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew 16. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. Just so you know, all of the cross-reference passages will be on the screen, but we have the um, main passage not on the screen, just kind of as an encouragement to have a Bible to follow along as you're sitting, whether that's on your phone or a physical copy like this. So let's read Matthew 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be a stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So guys, if you've been with us in the book of Matthew, the first part of the story, today's text, may sound a little familiar. Um, where a group of Pharisees come up to Jesus and they basically say, hey look, we'll we know you're a teacher, you've been saying these things, and we're, we're on board, we'll believe if you'll just show us a sign. Do some sort of miracle, provide some sort of evidence for us that you are the Son of God, that you are the person that you claim to be. This happened several chapters ago, and it's the same thing, just a different group of Pharisees. Likely these guys have come up from Jerusalem to question Jesus as he's ministering in the region of Galilee. So it's the same question. Jesus essentially gives the same response because he knows that these guys have already made up their mind, right? Um, there's been plenty of evidence. There's been plenty of signs and wonders and just what God is doing through this man, Jesus. There's been plenty of evidence for them to believe and get on board, but they've made up their minds and they're looking for a way out. So instead of placating to their request for a sign, Jesus basically says, look, you guys, what's sad is you guys are better meteorologists than you are Pharisees, right? Um, he basically tells them, look, you, you can look at the sky and you know what that weather's going to be like that day, which is actually kind of impressive, right? Because apparently they were better at it than our current meteorologists, right? So they should have taken up a different trade, I guess. But he basically says, how is it that you guys are, are better at being a meteorologist than you are at being a theologian? You guys are supposed to be teachers and you know these things and yet right in front of you right now, the kingdom of God has come and you've missed it. You've turned a blind eye to it. You've rejected it, right? And so he doesn't really dignify them with a really long um, elaborate response. He just says, no sign is going to be given except that of the sign of Jonah. And then we move in, on in our text, and Jesus is with the disciples. They're, they're leaving that area, going to the other side of the lake, and they reach the other side. Um, and this really interesting thing happens, and the, the, the context is kind of weird. Like, we don't know the tone. We don't know 
um, exactly what this interaction was like. But basically, the disciples get there. They realize they haven't brought any bread. Jesus makes a comment about bread. And it, I, I almost get the impression that they're kind of like ashamed or embarrassed that they didn't think to pack lunch, right? Um, that, I don't know if that's how it went, but, but, but it might have gone something like this. Like, you know, Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. They're like, oh my gosh. And then he's like, all right. Peter kind of rounds everyone up. He's like, okay, which one of you jokers was supposed to bribe bread, okay? Because this is embarrassing. You had one job, right? Judas, you take care of the purse, right? You've got the money. Where's the bread? Judas is like, man, holes keep wearing down in this bag, and the money just keeps disappearing. I don't know what's happening, but no, I didn't get any bread. And Thomas is over there like, yeah, Judas, I doubt that, right? Um, Little church joke for you. So however it went down... um, they don't have any bread, and it could be that they were just hungry. It could be, based on the way the text reads, it could be that they were just like, man, like, these fish and cheese roll-ups aren't going to cut it, right? We need some bread. Like, they're, 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 they could be that just they're worried about not being able to eat because they're hungry. But however you look at it, what we see is that the result of this is that Jesus is frustrated that their minds are preoccupied with earthly things rather than matters of the kingdom. Right, that, that they're, they're sitting there arguing about bread and whether or not they have bread or maybe he was supposed to pack it, why they don't have it, what they're going to eat. And Jesus said, mentions this thing about we wear the leaven of the Pharisees. They're like, Do they think, does he think like we bought poisoned bread from the Pharisees? Their minds are just completely focused on this physical, earthly, temporal thing. And Jesus is becoming frustrated that they're not seeing the bigger picture. They're not seeing that there are matters of the kingdom I'm discussing here. And you're so focused on whether or not you're going to have lunch that you, you're missing it. You don't see it because their minds are preoccupied with things of the earth rather than things of the kingdom. It's like they've already forgotten what Jesus said in Matthew 6, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things like food will be added as well. But they're not seeking his kingdom. They're, they're worried about bread. And that's one of the observations I want us to take away from this story, rather an application is this, is that Jesus wants us to be preoccupied with matters of his kingdom. He wants us to be preoccupied with matters of his kingdom and that work. Too often, our minds are occupied, preoccupied with a hundred other things, right? Um, the word preoccupied, I looked up a definition of that. Short and simple, it just means this, engrossed in thought, distracted, right? To be preoccupied with something means that's the thing you're engrossed in. You've engrossed your mind, your thoughts, your brain on these things and not on something else so that you're distracted from anything else. And we know what this is like. I mean, if we're all to get really honest right now and say, what is my mind preoccupied with? Just on a daily weekly basis? What are the things, what is the thing my mind keeps going back to? What are the things filling my thoughts throughout the day? I think for a lot of us it would be money, right? What it looks like to be preoccupied with money is even when you're not thinking about finances, when you're with your family or you're doing your job or whatever the things you're doing or you're at church, your mind kind of keeps coming back to like, how can I make a little more? Like, what opportunities are out there that I could take advantage? What if I move this over here? What if I started doing this? Or what if I changed that? How can I capitalize a little bit more and gain a little bit more or save a little bit more or buy a little bit more, right? That our minds can be so easily preoccupied with, with wealth and money. 
And it's not that those are bad things to think about, right? Just like it's not bad for the disciples to think about bread. Apparently they should have thought about it a little more, right? But, but it becomes an issue when we're so preoccupied with money that we cease to think about matters of the kingdom. Maybe it's sports, either a sports team you follow or, or your kids' sports and the activities they're involved in that the thing you keep coming back to throughout the day is how to improve his swing, right? Or, or how to make her better at water polo or whatever random sport it is, right? That, that you keep coming back to how to improve your kids' sports. Like that's the most important thing in your life. Maybe it's leisure. Maybe you're just always daydreaming, thinking about that, that next hobby you get to partake in or that next trip that you get to go on. Maybe it's appearance. Maybe it's fitness. Whatever it is, it's the thing that you think about when you wake up and when you lie down. And I think what we need to consider this morning in light of this is what would it look like if instead of being preoccupied with whatever thing that's preoccupying your mind, if your mind were preoccupied with matters of the kingdom, what would that look like? Well, I think we have an answer for that in Scripture, and it was a verse that was actually already read earlier this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You see God's instruction to his people Israel on how he wants their minds to be preoccupied with him, his teachings, his ways. Deuteronomy 6 says this, You shall teach them diligently to your children. In your house, listen to, listen to how constant and pervasive this is. Throughout the day, this is what I want your mind to be on. In your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. He's saying, this is when you should be thinking about me and my statutes and my ways. <laughs> Basically all the time, right? You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. Wear a bracelet or a, um, a, you know, a mark on your hand to, to, to remind you of that. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This verse just paints this picture of someone who's preoccupied with the things of God throughout his or her day. Now, I'm going to do something I, I very rarely do, and my wife's going to be really embarrassed because she doesn't know I'm going to do this, but I was thinking about, I mean, what would that look like for someone in um, 2021 to be preoccupied with the things of God? And the, the first person that came to my mind was, was my wife, and here's why. She, most mornings, both of us struggle with consistency, um, but most mornings she wakes up pretty early before the kids, um, is able to get in a workout, spend some time reading scripture. And the one thing I've noticed is here lately, the last year or so, she started, um, she started homeschooling about a year ago. And so she's just constantly thinking about how to do that better. And not just like how to teach math and science, right? But how to use the time she now has with our kids at home to invest in them, to nurture them, to teach them, for her to work on her heart and her attitude, to have a good, healthy, loving approach and think about how she's going to disciple them, what she's going to teach them, where she's going to work that in her day. So after she reads, she's in there in the bathroom getting ready and she's listening to a podcast. I remember what it's called. I should have got that from her so I could recommend it to you. Maybe it'll send an email or something. But uh, it's, it's a podcast about, about parenting your kids, bringing them up in the Lord. And she's, she's listening to that same thing as she goes to bed. She's just, her mind is just lately, the last year or so, just been constantly focused on things of the kingdom, of teaching our kids throughout her day about the Lord, pointing them to him, raising them up in him. Just a good example of that. But I wonder 
if that's true of all of us. I wonder how many of us have that same preoccupation with things of God's kingdom, or do our minds constantly drift to other things? Because here's the deal. You're never going to get there by accident. Like, you're never going to be accidentally preoccupied with things of the kingdom, right? I mean, I've never heard this story. I've never heard someone say, yeah, man, I used to not really care a whole lot about the Lord, but then, you know, one day I just was sitting around, and before I knew it, I was like binge reading the Bible till 3 a.m., and, and here we are. I'm fully following Jesus now, right? That, that never happens, right? Like, we drift into things that are of the world, right? But we don't ever just kind of accidentally drift into godliness. And I think that's why we have those verses in Deuteronomy. It's, just, it's this idea of put things around you in your life, cues, reminders, right? Um, on your doorpost, on your wrist, like everywhere you go, put cues and reminders in there to keep you coming back and recentered on things of the kingdom so that you become the type of person who's always thinking about the Lord and what he's doing and how he wants to use you in the different situations that you're in. Maybe another good question we could ask ourselves in light of that is, what would it take for me to become a person who's more preoccupied in my mind with the things of God in this kingdom? What would need to happen for me to have that mindset where from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed and everything in between, I'm thinking about God and his kingdom, how he wants to use me in this situation, how I can be a blessing here, how I can pursue him in this area of my life, how I can better honor him over there. What would it take for us to get to that point? Because that's Jesus' frustration throughout this whole text, 5 through 12, as he's just getting frustrated them for thinking only about things of the world and not things of his kingdom. And, And the actual warning Jesus is giving here is he's giving them a very important warning about being on guard or being aware of false teachings. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So guys, we know that um, Jesus wants us to beware of false teachings. It's, it's what he's saying here. And we know that teachings and ideas are very powerful, right? We all know this. We all know that uh, an idea or a thought or a, a teacher can, can drastically shift and change um, an entire people, an entire organization, and an entire country at times, right? Um, we know the, the power that those things have. There's quotes about that. Um, that are famous. One of them by Victor Hugo. It says this, there's one thing stronger than all the armies in the world, and that is an idea whose time has come. And Jesus himself is a, a testimony to this, right? If you think about the amount of power and influence Jesus had on earth and how he shaped history, what did he really do? He was a teacher, right? He didn't lead any armies, Right? He didn't overturn any civilizations or rulers or kings. He, he had no physical army, and yet he made a greater impact on the world than the greatest general, maybe Alexander the Great, right? than any other military leader that ever lived. Or a more common one that many of you have heard before, the pen is mightier than the sword. 
We know the power of ideas and teachings. And so you may remember in Matthew 13, Jesus used this illustration of leaven about the kingdom of God. And he said the kingdom of God is like a little leaven someone mixed in, right? And then before long, it spread throughout the whole dough, right? That a little seemingly small and insignificant thing comes in and changes everything, right? That that's kind of the illustration of leaven is how a little bit added to the dough can just be pervasive and, and have such a far reaching impact, even though it seems on the surface like a small thing. But here Jesus flips it. Here Jesus says, just, just like good things of the kingdom can come in seemingly small and insignificant and have pervasive effects, these teachings, these, these good, solid teachings, the same is true in the opposite direction for false teachings. That a false teacher or a false thought can be very deadly and destructive. It's interesting that throughout the New Testament, most of the warnings that Jesus and Paul and the other writers give to their followers and to the church, the vast majority of them are not about persecution, right? Although there are a few about that, but the vast majority of them are not about some external threat that's going to come in and squash the church or God's people or his movement. The vast majority of the warnings are about false teachers. Wolves that come in in sheep's clothing, people that come into the church, and maybe they don't even realize this, but and begin to teach things and say things that are twisted versions of the truth that are a little off or that are outright false that begin to destroy and harm God's people, that that is the threat, the most um, prominent threat to the church. In the book of Titus, I'm going to read this text to you guys. Book of Titus, chapter 1. Paul's writing Titus, this uh, younger pastor, and he's challenging him. And this is what he says to him. Titus, chapter 1, verse 9. He says this, talking about the qualifications of a pastor. And he says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may able, be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So Paul's saying, if anyone's going to be a pastor, he's got, he's got to hold fast to sound doctrine, not just so that he can present that and teach that, but so that he's able to recognize false teachings and stand against them. Why is that so important? Verse 10, here's why. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So he says he's got to be able to do this because those false teachings are out there, right? They're here right now. They're coming. There will always be things that contend against the health of the church. In verse 11, he says this, they must be silenced. That a pastor, if he's to do his job well, cannot allow those false teachings to infiltrate the church. He must stand against them. He must do something about them. He must call them out. He must put a stop to those who are teaching them. Why? Because they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So there's all these warnings in the New Testament about the dangers of false teachings. And so since that's our, our text this morning, Jesus is saying, beware the leaven, beware these false teachings. What I want to do for just a few minutes is point out some of the false teachings that are common in our day, in the church in America in 2021. Um, before we do this, I want to, I want to give a, just kind of a, 
a check real quick because I have a feeling that some of you heard me say that and you are licking your lips right now. You're like, oh man, I hope he nails this person, right? Or I hope he goes after this thought or I can't wait till he says this or he better cover that, right? Like if that's you, if this is not a slam fest, okay? The point of this is not to go through a list of a bunch of people that we're just gonna drag them through the mud and slam them and just like all pat ourselves on the back for being better than them, right? That's not the intention here. Um, the intention here is that these teachings really are dangerous. And we really need to be aware of common voices or ideas that are pervasive in our church culture so that we can recognize them and not be lured into that trap, okay? So this isn't, again, this isn't a slam fest. This is a a chance for us for all to step back and be warned by some of these things. So the first guy we're going to talk about is Social Justice Sam. They're all going to have a name. Social Justice Sam. Social Justice Sam is maybe the, the hardest one to talk about because, again, he's, he's, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He, he doesn't, he, social, social Justice Sam doesn't show up and goes, hey guys, I'd like to join the church and my intention is to become a member and then divide everyone and, and make everyone hostile towards each other. Does that sound good? Is there a place for me here, right? He doesn't say that, right? Um, otherwise, he'd be easy to spot. That, wouldn't be, that would be a wolf in wolf's clothing, right? Social Justice Sam is a guy who has some issue or issues that he has decided are just the only thing that matters anymore. Um, that could be anything from clean water in Africa to standing against abortion to wokeness to any other issue you could name, and social justice Sam has decided, or, or political poly, right, whatever you want to call him, has decided, like, that is the thing we need to be talking about and doing, and before you know it, the gospel has become a side note. The gospel has become peripheral, and there's no longer a need to talk about the gospel because this issue should be dominating our thoughts and our time and our attention, And that issue may be a really good issue, but he's made it the ultimate issue. And and the worst version of social justice, Sam, is that he has even decided to compromise the message of the gospel for the sake of reaching the hurting, right? That, man, there, there's people who are, who are hurting, and, and the church's job is to, is to reach out and to, and to meet that need, right? You often associate with meeting, like, tangible, physical needs, that we ought to be about that. And all this stuff we do on Sunday morning of being devoted to God's word and prayer, that's all just kind of a, a song and dance. We're just kind of wasting our time. We ought to be out there meeting those needs. And, and, and at his worst, social justice, Sam says, and we, we probably shouldn't talk a whole lot about like things like sin, right? Because that's, that's not what the world needs from us is to talk about sin and Jesus's work on the cross, their need to repent. Like people are hungry, people are hurting. And so those things may get in the way of us being able to meet those physical needs and help them. And so social justice, Sam begins to compromise or ignore the gospel for the sake of keeping some cause or some thing he's passionate about at the center of everything, and the gospel becomes compromised or peripheral in the process of that. So beware social justice, Sam. Also beware visionary victor. Seems like every three years, someone comes out with a book about a vision they had. 
few years ago, it was Heaven is for Real, right? Do you guys remember this book? And then it's like you had this wave of Christians in the church going, finally, someone wrote us a book about what heaven is like. And they reached across their Bible to grab it, right? And that, you laugh at that, but it, it can be tempting. All of us can be allured by that, like if someone had a vision, right? A new revelation, a new thought, and now we can finally understand some things about the Lord. Visionary Victor carries with him a, um, usually a strong personality or likes to talk a lot about his vision rather than scripture. That's how you spot visionary Victor, right? Because here's the deal. I'm not saying God can't give visions to people. I, think he, I actually think he does. He still gives people visions. He still speaks directly through people, not just through scripture and the Holy Spirit, but sometimes he just speaks to people. I, I believe that happens. Um, some of you guys may not. That's fine. Um, but what we see in scripture, and Paul is such a good example of this, is when he writes to the Corinthians, he goes, look, I've I know a guy that's had lots of visions and had lots of experiences, but I'm not going to write about that. I came to you in humility and preached Christ and him crucified, right? So that your confidence would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power and the work of Jesus. So visionary Victor isn't bad because he has a vision or even he writes a book about a vision. Visionary Victor is dangerous because he starts to build his whole ministry around his vision and what God has shown him and talks way, way more about that than he does the simple message of the gospel, Christ and him crucified, and stops relying on the revelation God has given us through his word. Number three is prosperity preacher Preston. This guy is, um, this guy is one of the more evident ones. If you don't know this, the, there's, this, there's this version of, you call it Christianity, I guess, out there, of people who preach this gospel where there is a ton of emphasis on God wants us to prosper. God wants us as his people to have financial success in our careers, and our marriage. He wants us to be healthy. He doesn't want anything bad to happen to us. And, and, and while some of those things can be true, right? God does want the best for us. He does have our best interests in mind, and he will bless the works of our hands as we're faithful to him oftentimes. But prosperity preacher Preston has no room for martyrs in his theology. No room for martyrs. No room for, maybe for some of us, God wants to bring us through suffering and honor himself and glorify himself as he did with Jesus, right? Not through our prosperity, but through our sufferings and how we handle the difficulties in our lives. Prosperity Preston talks a lot about things getting better here and now in this life and not a lot about trusting in the finished work of Jesus and that things will really get better at the marriage supper of the Lamb when we're reunited to Jesus fully and finally. And Paul will oftentimes call out people by name in the New Testament. I'm going to do the same here. There's a guy named Joel Osteen that is like the king of this. You may have seen him on TV. You may have seen his books. And I'm telling you, as a pastor, beware of him, that his teachings are false, that he may say some true things, but he is ultimately preaching a gospel that is not centered on the person and atoning work of Jesus, but on a gospel that promises 
more blessings and stability and wealth and health and prosperity for you, which is not the gospel of Jesus. So beware of the prosperity preachers like Joel Osteen who emphasize those things. Beware of Grassroots Gary. Grassroots Gary is a guy that really doesn't like the idea of big church. Like anything more than about 20 or 30 people in Grassroots Gary thinks, man, that has been compromised and that's just a big bureaucratic mess that we need to stay away from. And and Grassroots Gary says, man, we need to get back to the book of Acts, forgetting that the book of Acts started with a church of 2,000 people, right? Um, He's he's conveniently overlooked that and talked about how we, we don't need to have like paid staff and and buildings and things like that. We just need to get back to me and Jesus. Grassroots Gary has a very radically individualistic idea of his faith. And the idea of of a structure of offices of leadership like elder and deacon within the church is very off-putting to him. And guys, let me just let me just stop here and say this. I know some of these names are are, are kind of funny or whatever. They make you chuckle, but I'm, I'm not trying to be funny here. Like these are these ideas are truly dangerous. We as elders have sat across from the members of this church who've fallen into some of these things with tears in our eyes, pleading with them to consider other perspectives on this as they walked away from the church. Okay? This is these things are dangerous, and none of us is above being trapped or or pulled into some of these ideas. Number five is New Insight Nick. He's a lot like Visionary Victor. New Insight Nick usually is a guy who writes a book claiming to have unearthed these radically life-changing truths that no one has seen for the last 2,000 years, right? That um, Rob Bell was a good example of this. If you guys remember him when he was teaching, he would just go on these long, long explanations of, now you guys... As normal Christians don't understand this, but I've done a lot of research. And in my research, what I've learned is that in this time, at this context, because of this historical thing going on, based on this obscure source I found that very few people have read, here's the real truths that we really need to hang on to that will change our lives. And New Insight Nick usually has a following. There's usually people that like, Nick is our guy, man. And whenever you see someone that has a following and people... His followers identify with him more than they do Jesus. That's a red flag, right? Like, not only am I following Jesus, man, I really, really like the teachings of Nick. If I can just keep getting the teachings of new insight Nick, man, that's, that's what's going to do it for me. That's what's going to set me on a path to maturity. That's one of the reasons we have multiple voices from this pulpit is none of us wants to be new insight Nick. None of us wants to be the guy that you all think, man, as long as we have his teaching, we're good. That's a dangerous place to be. That's why it's good to have multiple voices from the pulpit, multiple people preaching. 1 Timothy 6, 4 says this in regard to some guys in the church um, in Ephesus that mirror new insight. Nick, he says, Paul's talking about this guy, and he says he's puffed up with conceit, and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. Earlier on in 1 Timothy, Paul talks about this guy going on about endless, endless genealogies, that he would get into real nuances and specifics within Scripture, like looking at a list of genealogies and start really making that his thing, right? Um, and says, like, look, all that stuff is 
can be good and helpful, but we don't need all these new insights to keep us going, right? Like, if you have your Bible, what you can understand from it is enough. The simple message of the gospel is enough. And so the antidote for all of these things, by the way, is learning sound doctrine. Having a sense of sound doctrine, studying sound doctrine. I got a, I don't mean to flaunt my wealth here, but I have a $20 bill. I just carry it around with me. No big deal. Sometimes I'll carry two or three. Um, if you ever looked at a dollar bill, it's, or a 20, if you're like me, um, there's, a, there's a lot of detail on these things, you know? Um, you've got like the, the 20s and like the four different fonts and four different parts of the bill. You've got the barroom brawler, Andrew Jackson there. Serial number, these signatures, all these little notes, these little imprints in the background. On the one, there's a little pyramid with the eye because aliens or something. Um, but there's so much detail to this thing. And, and they say that when, when, when someone who's in the counterfeit department at the FBI comes in and they're, and they're teaching them how to detect counterfeit, the first thing they do is they make them just study the heck out of the real thing. Like learn exactly what this looks like because this is the real. This is legal tender, people, all right? This is the real thing. This is the real $20 bill. Learn exactly down to every little mark what this looks like because once you know the real thing, you'll be able to recognize when something deviates from that thing. And so for us, the the trick to recognizing good doctrine isn't a longer list of um, caricatures, right? It's not a longer list of of ideas and, and, and a more exhaustive explanation of all the different false ideas out there, the key to recognizing it is understanding and learning sound doctrine, is knowing your Bible well enough to know when an idea or something doesn't smell right or doesn't look right or deviates from the whole counsel of Scripture. Because here's the deal. Please hear this if we hear nothing else this morning. Just because someone stands on a stage and opens a Bible doesn't mean he's preaching truth. Just because someone stands on a stage with an open Bible in front of him doesn't mean he's preaching the message of the gospel as revealed through the whole counsel of Scripture. So we've got to study doctrine so that we can recognize when something deviates from that. I want to read one more passage and... um, We'll wrap up with this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Man, if anyone could have been visionary victor or new insight Nick, it was Paul, right? I mean, Paul could have easily wowed and impressed everyone with the stories of the visions he had and the revelations that were given to him and all the insight he had as this like um, um, uh, high-level teacher of the law, this Pharisee of Pharisees, Right? He had the new insights. He had the visions. But what did he bring? When he went to churches, when he pastored people, when he invested in people and discipled people, what did Paul bring? What did he give them? What did he put at the forefront? 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says this, verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, 
and, uh, sorry, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech. He was not impressive or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Why? Why did Paul choose to not impress them with his visions and his insight? Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Friends, the, the message that you and I need, the bread that we need, is not the leaven of New Insight Nick or Social Justice Sam or any of those other guys. That The bread that you and I need is the pure spiritual milk of God's word and the gospel. Week after week after week, it's the message of the gospel. It's the message that all of us have rebelled against God. Everyone in this room. We have done things that make us unworthy to stand before our creator in acceptance and with his pleasure and approval upon us. Rather, we have rebelled against him and because that, his wrath was set against us. But God, because of the great love which he had for us, being rich in mercy, sent his son Jesus to die in our place, that God punished Jesus for the sins you and I committed, that if we would place, if we would abandon our ability to make ourselves with right standing with God and lay down our pride and say, I need the help and the atonement that Jesus offers to be reconciled to my creator, that if he would do that and place our faith in him, he would adopt us as sons and daughters of his. Our hope is in that. And church, that is what you need to hear every week. That's why we take the Lord's Supper every week, a reminder of Jesus' body broken and his blood poured out for our forgiveness. And I, whenever we talk about false teachings, one of the things I always think about is maybe there's people in here who are still looking for a church and maybe they don't land with us and that's okay. But would they be reminded today to, would you be reminded today to find a church that's preaching the gospel? Where the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, his atoning death is central and at the center of everything that we keep coming back to that. And I think about maybe some of you guys are members and, and maybe you don't know how to recognize some of these false teachings and false doctrines yet. Maybe you're new to the faith, you're still learning this and maybe God's gonna move you through your job or something like that to another place where you have to find a new church. Look for that. Look for a church who keeps coming back to the gospel that gives you the bread of Jesus's life and death on the cross and the message that through him, we can be reconciled to God in a right relationship with our creator, okay? Let's pray. God, I pray that that would be the case. I pray that everyone hearing this message right now would just be reminded that we need Jesus. But that the fallacy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees wasn't a lot of the, the things they believed and taught was that they rejected the Son of God and decided they didn't need him. And God, I pray that we would not be 
drawn away by any of these false teachings and false teachers that want to take our attention off of the work of Jesus and put it centrally on some other thing. God, would we be aware enough of our our sin and shortcomings to recognize that we need Jesus. We need his death. We need his resurrection on our behalf. We need his forgiveness so that we could be reconciled to you. I pray.